and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Luke Heron, a PhD in law candidate and law and political economy fellow at Yale Law School. We will discuss his draft article, Socializing Contract. So welcome to the show, Luke. Thanks, Brian. Lovely to be here. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about this, and I'm so glad that our a mutual friend, Ramsey Woodcock, uh, introduced you to me because I thought this paper was great, really provocative, uh, really a deep piece, and really made me think a lot more about kind of how we conceptualize contract law in both descriptive and normative terms. So congrats, and I, I can't wait to see uh, it, uh, the final version come out in print. Thanks, Brian. Uh, that's 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 the goal of the article, even if I don't convince you of the perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, so for listeners who might not be familiar with the kinds of competing theories of contract, you and really in law more generally and political philosophy more generally that you discuss in the paper, and also with some of the terminology that you use. I wonder if you could start by just briefly saying what you mean by socializing contract or or rather and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like it might even be better to think about it in terms of re-socializing contract. Right. Yeah, no exactly. So so uh the the way I think about um, I mean, one way to answer that question is conceptually, and another way is historically. And resocializing contract would suggest a more of a historical answer. Um, the the way I I do it historically in the introduction, um, uh, and my so maybe it's useful to provide a little bit of background. So you know, the contract law only really comes into its own in the late nineteenth century, and it comes into its own at the same time that a sort of abstract notion of contract as, uh, you know, a free agreement between two uh, rational parties um, uh, becomes the definition of what what a contract is and the organizing principle of contract law. So, you know, for instance, if you go back further in time, if you go back to Blackstone, um, contract is not a separate category in the law. It's, a you know, contra- different types of contracts are subcategories and different types of property exchange or, um, you know, family law arrangement. Um, but when, you know, contract gets pulled out in the late 19th century as a separate discipline, it comes to have this particular type of meaning, um, a sort of a, an idealized form of a free will of parties joining together. Um, and that, um, we might call that the sort of original formalist, uh, vision of what contract is. Um, and I would, and that was, that's a, I would say that's a desocialized version of contract. Namely, um, it takes the idea of what's going on in a contract um, as as the the joining of the wills of two parties, regardless of their social standing, regardless of what they're doing to you know what their joint project is, um, regardless of you know where in the country they are, of what their gender is, of what their race is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, and it's desocialized in that descriptive sense, but it's also desocialized in a, in a normative sense. Um, uh, which is that there's no, uh, the question of whether the details of the, you know, the, the sort of moral propriety of the details of their agreement is treated as um, up to them. Um, and as it were, they, you know, they, they're not, their obligations to other people don't really pertain to the question of how to enforce their obligations to each other. 
um, and the way that their agreement fits in with other agreements don't pertain to the to, to what matters about that agreement. Um, so so and then this that has real bite um, in the Lochner era when the idea of contract um, as a sort of holy domain into which um, courts should not inquire becomes constitutionalized um, and becomes a way to strike down form, you know, ways of restructuring how agreements are entered into specifically in the labor relationship. Um, so, so that's sort of the original desocialization of contract, you might say. Um, and then the response to that, uh, one of the responses to that is the, is what's sort of broadly called the American legal realist movement, um, which uh, had a number of responses to, you know, from mockery to sort of deep philosophical uh, uh, deconstruction um, to this original formalist account, um, pointing out that the, you know, that power between the parties matters a lot and that courts, you know, to, to ignore the, the, the social situation in which a contract uh, exists is to miss a lot of what is really both socially and morally important about that agreement. Um, and particularly with respect to labor contracts. So, you know, the, the freedom of contract between a, a, you know, baker who's working 15 hours a day and, and the bakery that's employing him, um, the relative freedom of each of those parties is different. And a law that restricts hours of bakers might actually increase uh, the, the freedom of choice of, of the baker um, rather than diminishing it by, you know, in this formal sense of preventing his ability to contract for, you know, theoretically any number of hours. Um, so that I would call that the American legal realist movement, the first sort of socialized socialization of contract, uh, both in that descriptive and normative sense. Um, and that, you know, general attitude about contract to be very simplistic about this history sort of prevailed until the seventies. Um, when, uh, there were a lot of crises in the, you know, sort of political and moral crises in the United States that, um, where that opened up the possibility for a new desocialization of contract. And so Charles Fried, who's a sort of famous moral philosopher, moral and legal philosopher, um, and also judge, uh, wrote a book called Contract as Promise in the late 1970s. And Richard Posner and other economic analysts were um, writing work also in the 1970s, attacking this notion of, um, of um, thinking about uh, contract in terms of, you know, different types of contract in different social situations and, and um, you know, thinking about contracts as, um, you know, different, you know, some contracts are between collectivities and, and, there's, and there's a sort of continuum between tort and contract and between property and contract, and there's not a sort of self-sustaining category. Um, and so anyway, Freed and Posner, both, uh, you know, right-wing, what, what they would call sort of classical liberals or libertarians, um, saw this as as both morally and uh, descriptively problematic, and and they created what I would say is a second desocialization of contract, and and um, what I'm trying to do is sort of resocialize contract in the experience in the sort of spirit of the original realist movement. And I should say I'm not I'm not the only person to make this sort of objection since Freed and um, Posner wrote that, but I guess that's the basic idea of what sort of historically and conceptually the question of desocialization and resocialization of contract is. Right. Well, so I mean, as I take it in your paper, you argue, and I, I found this 
convincing and compelling that sort of the current conventional wisdom on contract theory and how to understand the structure and purpose of contract law kind of grew out of Fried and Posner's project, as well as the work of many other kind of scholars working in in a similar vein, heavily influenced by kind of neoclassical economics and so on. I mean, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that theory of contract and what it sees as a justification for contract law and, and why people think that that theory has certain advantages. So, right. So Fried and Posner are certainly to be distinguished and they definitely don't think they agree with each other. Um, I sort of, whether they agree, whether they would agree with my portrayal of both of them as desocializing contract, I think Fried might, whether Posner would, I, is a different question. Um, but so, so, you know, the Posnerian conception is the law and economic conception, the sort of neoclassical economics conception that you mentioned, which is that, um, you know, what, what, uh, uh, legal scholarship ought to be is um, just, I mean, especially the sort of like high version of the, the sort of most pure version of the Posner art, uh, point is that, you know, the common law is efficient. And what we should do is understand why it's efficient. Um, and efficient here means, um, you know, uh, maximizes the social welfare or actually maximizes the the, will, the wealth of um, everybody as much as possible uh, given the given scarce resources. Um, and so, uh, you know, how does that pertain to contract? Well, um, the basic idea is that, you know, if, as we, as neoclassical economists assume people are, um, people are the best judges of what's good for them and um, are, are basically always going to make the right decision about what's good for them, then all of their decisions about anything, but also especially about which contracts they should enter into are going to be um, the decisions about the, 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 they're going to choose the right contracts for them. Um, And so, uh, you know, and, and not only are they going to choose the right contracts for them because that's everyone's doing that. And because, you know, so, so long as you live in a free market and what exactly that means is somewhat hand wavy, but so long as you live in a free market, um, uh, when everybody does that, um, it, things work out such that, you know, resources go to the people who most value them. And so the, basically the role of contract law is to let people arrange things in the best way for themselves, which aggregates to the best way for everyone. And the role of the law is just to let that happen, to facilitate contracts and to make it as least costly as possible. So that's, that's the sort of attraction. That's the basic intuition behind that view, um, which I should note, there's like, there's a certain socialized from a normative perspective, there's a certain socialized aspect to that view, which is to say, um, you know, it's not, you don't, it's not as it were normatively, uh, prior that you should respect the will of the parties. It's that it's, you know, the social welfare, the net social welfare is maximized if you respect the will of the parties. So we can, we can take into account how contracts fit into society. It's just that the best way to account for that is to let people do it themselves. Um, you know, if you make certain assumptions about how people make decisions and then the, you know, Charles Fried is going to be a very different perspective, although they often end with the same political sort of sorts of political conclusions. Fried is a, you know, neo-Kantian uh, moralist uh, who thinks that, um, you know, contract is, I mean, his views have shifted somewhat over the years, but that contract is basically promise and promise is a, a moral institution 
um, that uh, has a particular structure that one can sort of uncover if, if you observe how it works in different contexts. And um, the, the, you know, the, the structure of the moral institution is such that um, it's two, you know, free and rational parties respecting the, the, the wills of each other. And so the thing, you know, if you believe that society should be oriented towards um, equal freedom, that we all share freedom with each other equally, um, you should, you know, contract is in some ways a primary institution of that. It allows people to to do what they want as, as you know, uh, to do exactly as much as they want as doesn't harm other people because they're agreeing, they're getting somebody to agree um, about how far they, should, that they are able to go without harming them. Um, so um, that's a sort of very, very basic version of the view. And that's a very different way of justifying, right? That's not it's better for the net social welfare in some instrumental sense, but rather there's something sort of inherent, like the, the thing we ought to care about is not welfare, whatever that means, but rather um, freedom, respect for each other's uh, free choices. And, and contract also has that sort of structure. And so that's the basic appeal. And so for Freed, what was sort of <clears throat> um, distasteful about what he called the gauche mix of Oh, I forget exactly what it is, but he's sort of very dismissive of like the the allergy to free the free markets that he saw in the 1970s legal academy. Um, is that it doesn't respect people's choices? It's 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 it doesn't allow people to to um, be authors of their own lives, um, and and that's the primary value of uh, having a contract law that basically you know just enforces people's wills wherever contracts are made and and leaves the rest to to other areas of law or to people's individual decisions. So if I may, I mean, it seems like the kind of Posnerian view is proposing a kind of consequentialist justification for contract enforcement, and the Freed view is, you know, proposing a kind of deontological justification for contract enforcement. But at the end of the day, they're both justifications for contract enforcement. And you you present in the paper a number of criticisms of both of these views kind of both individually and, and collectively. I, I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the weaknesses of these perspective. And do you see those, those weaknesses as primarily descriptive, normative, or both? To answer the last question first, it's some mix of descriptive and normative. Um, although, uh, you know, what I think, you know, and the mix varies for the different ones. So, with respect to formalist views, and this goes beyond Freed in particular, and I'm classifying, by the way, I'm classifying as formalist here, some people who might not be comfortable with that classification. Um, but what I say is a formalist view is a view that understands contract as having a logic that can be um, uncovered qua contract. That is to say, you know, th- there there is something about the fact that um, there's, uh, that two people are, you know, engaging in a joint, freely engaging in a joint project um, that one can, you know, one can use that fact, um, to come to certain conclusions about how one ought to design rules to, um, uh, deal with those sorts of agreements. Um, and the problem that I have with these, with that, those sorts of views is that they don't, um, that they're desocialized. In other words, that they, they, um, they don't, uh, uh, they sort of treat it as morally irrelevant how contracts fit together with other contracts and how a given contract um, 
between two parties has impacts on other parties and the broader social world. Um, and which is to say, it's not that they think those things are irrelevant, but just those things are not relevant to the question of how one understands the moral logic of contract and one, and the moral logic of contract is what one ought to understand if one's understanding, you know, what sort of contract law is qua contract law. Um, so, so, you know, I, I actually have a number of examples, not a number of sorts of objections, not all of which I go through in the article, but the the two sorts of objection I talk through in the article are, um, one, um, I actually think it's, so the sort of easier to understand, I think, is that um, this question of power inequality is that when, when people who are, you know, have the same, roughly the same amount of social standing and, and resources um, and what we, other things that we might think constitute power form an agreement, um, that's a sort of situation where one thinks that, you know, there's, there's a sort of, there's an exchange there. Um, there's a mutual independent, there's two parties are relatively independent and there's the, the sorts of dependence that is created between the parties um, is sort of relatively easy to understand as the joining together of two wills. But the, the more unequal the parties are, the more that um, um contracts, especially contracts for labor, for um, essential goods, for um, for debts, um, some of which, you know, historically turn into labor agreements through things like indentured servitude, um, those sorts of contracts um, become <clears throat> more and more ways to, you know, you can, one way to describe them, I mean, you can still very clearly describe them as two parties freely agreeing to do something, you know, get, and, and, agreeing to do the thing that's best for them given their social situation. And yet there's still something morally problematic about the fact that, you know, somebody's entering into an indentured servitude agreement or certainly a, an agreement to, to be enslaved, although that might have different sorts of um, formal problems. Um, um, and, you know, so one way to describe that is that, you know, contract is understood to be a sort of horizontal relationship, a relationship of, um, um, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the exact word, whereas um, the relationship between two unequal people, whether it's via contract or via, you know, um, uh, a customary relationship, like between a, a, a peasant and a lord, um, is, is fundamentally a, a relationship of domination. So even the fact that people agree to something doesn't mean that, that there's not something problematic about that relationship. Um, and so I go through, you know, I go through some of the details about what formalists are inclined to say about this, um, which I don't think are very convincing. But that's one sort of problem with just sort of looking at what the moral logic of contract is. It doesn't tell, it doesn't allow you to think about those sorts of cases, um, certainly in a continuum and, and, uh, and even sort of in the extreme cases it you have to sort of take a contractual logic and then balance it against some other logic and then that sort of pushes the question up a level. So that's one sort of problem. And then, and then another sort of problem, I think, goes more to the core of the, of, of the sorts of um, pictures that formalists want to paint about what contracts are doing, which is that um, it's actually not entirely clear that you can say what two people have agreed to, especially in a complex society, especially in a society where there are so many contracts, um, without taking into account both some of the descriptive and moral aspects of the context in which those parties enter the, the contract. And so to be much, to try to be less abstract about that, 
the sort of more the most extreme case of this has been relatively familiar in the contract literature over recent years. So when you when somebody enters into a contract that they just haven't read and there's no reasonable prospect to think that they have read it, what have they agreed to do? It's not certainly the the, the mutual will of the parties doesn't tell you all that much about what they've agreed to do. Um, and indeed, there's a recent article by Margaret Jane Radin and um, on, and Robin Carr, which I think is a great article that argues that you know actually yes, if you're fully committed to something like a, a, a sort of a self-contained logic of contract, you have to agree that these no-read contracts are basically you know the the only thing agreed to is like the most essential terms that that people would agree to. But but and and my point is that if you accept that, um, the the thing that you're saying is that. Um, you know what people so and it, I should clarify for Carr and and Raiden um, the thing people agree to is not what they subjectively agree to. It doesn't. It's not just like you can't just not read the contract and say you haven't agreed to it. But rather, it's some objective notion about what is reasonable to be expected to be able to understand about the agreement. Um, in fact, they have a whole discussion about uh, about um, how meaning is created conversationally. Um, using this notion of conversational implicature that comes out of the philosophy of language literature. And so the, but the point there is that, you know, what you can understand about what the parties have agreed to depends on, you know, the norms of the, of this, of the area of life in which they're embedded. Um, and if that's the case, then, then the very core of the contract, the very content, the very content of the agreement and whether an agreement has been entered into at all depends on social context, depends on, on, a normative analysis, a descriptive analysis of social context of 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 how language and and agreement work in a given context, and a normative analysis about what is reasonable to expect of somebody in a given context, um, which is a sort of tort like analysis almost. Um, uh, so anyway, and that, so that's the the nature of the sort of objection. I think there's you can make similar sorts of problems. There's a piece I cut out of the article about well, how do contracts affect other contracts, and so. Um, so I won't get into that here, but that's also true for formalists. And then I, maybe it's, maybe you want to pause and ask a further question, but I can also get into um, what I think is the problem with the the economic view as well. Well, so maybe we could do that in the context of some of the kind of criticisms you offer both historically and kind of your own take on those criticisms. Like maybe starting with, well, for example, like, you know, I observe that at least on my reading of of the article, you seem to offer both observations on realist and critical realist takes on what it would look like to socialize contracts. Uh, and in particular, in the realist context, you, you spend a great deal of time talking about Carl Llewellyn as well as other uh, legal realist thinkers from, from that period. I was wondering if maybe you could contrast the way that someone like Llewellyn thought about understanding contract law in a socialized sense, maybe like through his work on the UCC or something else in relation to how the kind of law and economics movement has conceptualized thinking about how contracts work in, in a social sense. Yeah. So I think Carl Llewellyn um, doesn't have a, so his view I think somewhat shifts over the years, um, especially as he gets later you know, as he gets later into a career, I think he becomes somewhat more conservative, although I think there's a, there's a consistent thread throughout. Um, but, you know, so interestingly, economic analysts are going to want to claim 
Carl Llewellyn, or they're going to say what Carl Llewellyn is doing is great, and they they all they're often identified they identify themselves as realist. Um, what Carl Llewellyn is doing is great, but he's just like his economic his economics isn't good enough. Like you know he was writing at a time when economics wasn't developed enough, and now we have better economics, and so like there's basically you know it's like as if physics has advanced and we now understand more about the subatomic world and we can you know have a better analysis um but like you know thank you newton right but you you did a lot of good things but now we know more about the world that's the sort of way that you know alan schwartz has an article about um carl llewellyn that talks about him in this way but the way llewellyn understood so i think that actually just fundamentally misconceives what he's doing in a certain way which is that um because in fact carl llewellyn said that he was sort of against neoclassical economics and pro-institutionalist economics, as he himself wrote. Um, but anyway, he um, um, would understand... Con- so he understood what was happening in common law. Like his, I would say his mature view, his earlier view is like he's, he's often just sort of throwing rocks at the edifice and just saying, well, you know, the way law works is like it changes through time and, you, you know, you have, to be, you have to be open to changes. Um, and, you know, you formalists don't get anything and actually even social theorists don't get anything. But anyway, um, his, his developed view basically understands what's happening in common law as um, judges doing something, using what he calls situation sense, which is to, which is to sort of, they t- there's a dispute that comes to them and they have to make sense of what's happening in the dispute. Um, so they have to do interpretive work to get a sense, to say like, well, not just what's happening between the two parties, which is something formalists would say, you know, that this dispute comes to the court um, and the, the, the role of the judge is sort of, sort of like analyze the moral logic of the relationship between the parties as a neutral observer um, and develop rules that would make sense to any two parties that are in this sort of relationship ind- independent of their individuality. And what Llewellyn would, would understand as going on is it's, it's that in a sense, but it's also that, you know, the, the 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 structure of the relationship between the two parties doesn't it depends on how it fits into a broader social field. Um, so the way that um, you know parties on a securities exchange um, enter into a contract and the sorts of contracts they're going to want to enter into are different is different from the way consumer you know people who are buying goods on Amazon are going to enter into a contract or the people who are you know you know. St- uh, starting to use the Facebook platform or entering into a contract, which is different from the way that, um, you know, uh, uh, an uncle uh, who <laughs> who uh, tells his um, nephew that he'll pay him a certain amount of money if he doesn't smoke or drink for for by the time he's you know twenty one enter, enters into a contract, and and that um, so part of what a court understands when the court understands the sort of nature of the agreement that's being entered into is. Uh, the nature of the social situation in which the, the agreement is being entered into, which, you know, which doesn't mean that every social situation has a different rule of contract necessarily, but rather that um, what is going to be relevant uh, is going to depend, you know, what is going to be relevant uh, to understanding what's going on between two parties is not going to just depend on what they themselves agreed to, which is always going to have some sort of ambiguity um, um, as in the way that I talked about when I was talking about Raiden and Carr, but also, you know, the courts are going to want to take with different degrees of seriousness if there's a power inequality or if there's a sort of broader question about whether these sorts of contracts should be entered into or whether they ought to be entered into only under certain conditions in the social context at issue. So, for instance, you know, 
Um, you might not want people entering into, you know, if there's organized exchanges for securities or for commodities, you might not want to enter, you might not want to enforce an over-the-counter agreement, or you might want to sort of read it very, um, you know, uh, uh, strictly against the drafter or something like that. Um, uh, and all of, and, and in, in addition to that, he's going to say that, um, you know, there's a certain notion of wisdom that's sort of an Aristotelian notion of wisdom that Llewellyn's going to care about, which is that it's part of the social situation isn't just that the parties themselves entering into a contract are embedded within an ongoing social interaction, but that the court has to understand what's it, what its role is and how its role might evolve. So, so whereas a court, um, you know, when people are social, you know, when in sort of small, you know, in an early America, when you know, markets are relatively distant from each other and there's no big corporations and, you know, the primary labor agreements are, um, you know, not, you know, there are sort of between one, you know, five workers and one boss and maybe between people who are traveling, et cetera, et cetera. The way that, um, uh, you know, and the, and the power of a court, you know, the court, there's not sort of a central army, et cetera, et cetera. Like the way, the sorts of way, the sorts of interpretive resources that a court is going to have at its disposal is going to be different than in a society when, um, you know, everyone more or less respects the law and nobody can flee the law and there aren't sort of alternative courts and et cetera. And, and also anyway, so, but this is just sort of give a broad sense of for Llewellyn, it's going to be, you know, you, to take into account all these factors, it's hard to come up with sort of an overarching theory. There's going to be a broad sense of situation sense, which is to say a court is going to sort of have to think about the details of what matters in any given agreement. And it's going to have some amount of judgment um, about uh, about what matters that, that can't sort of be fully conceptualized in a, in a high theory. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, so in the paper, you also discuss some what you refer to as kind of critical realists. Other people might kind of lump them in with critical legal studies more generally takes on contract theory. I mean, I, I wonder if you might kind of just really briefly talk a little bit about that critique and how it relates to your concept uh, or the concept of socialization of contract law that you talk about in the paper. Right. So I think what's important about um, the, the realist tradition as, and as it develops into the critical realist tradition is that it um, takes the, what I sort of talked about in terms of Llewellyn's insight, although he's not the only person who's writing about this sort of stuff, um, and, and takes it a step further by um, understanding that the, the fact that um, the, the fact that there is a contract in the first place and that that uh, that there's a court with certain types of competencies and powers to um, to to uh, regulate or to resolve a dispute between two parties um, in the first place depends on a whole set of prior political decisions about how a given area of social life is regulated, about who has which resources in that given area of social life. Um, and about um, what the role of the state is with respect to that area of social life, and and what and how courts fit in with that state, um, all of which is is some to, to say that is in some sense trivial. But um, the important point there is that all of those agreements are contingent, right? So the fact, so to be much more concrete about it, you know, 
if a court is presented, and to be concrete in a way that I think is maybe somewhat politically salient today, you know, the fact that a court is presented with, say, um, uh, say there's an insurance, a health insurance company that's enforcing, um, you know, a contract against a, a, a policyholder um, who can't pay <clears throat> or um, who doesn't want to pay because they, you know, because they, they don't, they think that they shouldn't have to pay or something like that. Um, you know, the fact that there that's even a, a contract question in the first place is only because um, healthcare is a commodity and, you know, health insurance is subject to contract in the United States, right? Which, which it is not, or which it is in a much more limited way um, in many other countries. Um, and the, even the details of that contract um, and the, fa and, and the sort of one-sidedness of that contract um, depend on, you know, how broad state state health insurance is and what regulations are about, um, what insurance companies can do and the like. Um, and, and that's again, like relatively trivial and obvious, but, um, uh, the, but if that's all true, then, um, if you treat it, if you treat that stuff as irrelevant to, um, a court approaching, uh, an agreement between an insurance company and, uh, a, a, a policyholder, um, then you're missing something important about the, 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 the social forces that make contracting necessary and maybe desirable in a given area of law. And, um, and also the role that courts play in reproducing, <clears throat> um, that given way of ordering social life. And so, um, with respect to insurance contracts, you know, it's somewhat, you know, it's somewhat maybe ridiculous to say, but if, you know, if all, courts just refuse to enforce insurance contracts that would create it would it would it would create a lot of things both good and bad right it, some people would you know suddenly not have to pay their bills but maybe insurance you know if insurance companies totally collapse then nobody would be insured but what would the knock-on effect of that be well would the would the political reality be such that you know judges would be kicked off the bench or would it be that you know suddenly we'd have to f reckon with the question about who should get health insurance and why um you know, just examining that question, um, I think, opens up space for asking for, for so I, for saying that, you know, actually, judges, in some sense, are silently engaging in, the, in those judgments anyways, even if they're not um, explicitly doing so, right? A judge is not saying, oh, man, if I don't, you know, I could, I could tear this whole health insurance system down if I don't enforce that contract. Um, but I'm not going to do that because it's too uncertain, right? Most judges aren't actually engaging in that judgment. But those are um, a set of judgments that are relevant to the question, morally relevant to the question about whether and on what terms to enforce a contract um, and a judge's question about uh, their own role in the social system. And so um, to bring it back to the question of, of how that fits in with the, my critiques, I think, you know, that's the sort of thing that um, you just can't, you can't cognize if you think about contracts as in purely in terms of an internal logic and you can't cognize and we didn't talk about this that much in terms of if you think about contracts purely in terms of two parties uh, maximizing their welfare um given you know uh uh scarce resources because because then because in order to conceptualize the sorts of thing that i was talking about you have to be able to think about how um other parts of the social system other areas of law structure the space in which contract operates and um and to see those settlements as not fixed and not, um, you know, sort of inherent, but, but always subject to 
either some sort of minor adjustment, which could then have knock-on effects, or um, or you know major adjustment, depending on you know if like uh, if the Supreme Court were to sort of like strike down health insurance contracts as unconstitutional, or strike down you know collective bargaining agreements as unconstitutional, for instance. Um, um, all of and anyway, so that's that's that, I think that's the the sort of the sort of um, real power that thinking about contract as socialized, both descriptively and morally. Um, can provide to uh, to contract theory. Mm. Well, so if I may, I mean, uh, at least my reading of your paper was that you had certain sympathies to this kind of critical realist approach, but also maybe certain reservations. So I, mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of your own concept of what it would mean to socialize contract and how we ought to think about that project from a theoretical and policy-based perspective. Uh, right. So so the, what I just described was more along the lines. It was a little bit closer to my view than I think what the critical legal studies view would be. Um, so, so for the critical legal, you know, for somebody like Duncan Kennedy, um, you know, it's almost as if like every, even every private law dispute that's in front of a judge is, um, is a potential moment for revolution. You know, Duncan Kennedy is, is, I don't know if he's, if he would describe himself as revolutionary or not, but he certainly is, uh, believes that our society, you know, is an anti-capitalist and believes in that we need a fundamentally different society. Um, but there's almost some sense that, you know, you know, you know, Williams versus Walker Thomas furniture, you know, when the judge, you know, took when Judge Skelly Wright takes the step into the void of unconscionability and opens up the space to think um, altruistically about, um, you know, black people in segregated Washington, D.C. being forced to enter into, you know, deeply predatory uh, uh, what are basically rent to own agreements in modern terminology. Um uh, you know, when you don't enforce that, you sort of like take one step closer to the the potential to, of restructuring the whole legal system. And I guess um, I would have my, I, I, there's a sense in which I think that's right, but there's also a sense in which I think um, um, it's worth um, thinking about how, uh, it, it, how contract rules, um, first of all, vary with social situation um, uh, and insofar as they vary, have, you know, understanding the, understanding the internal logic of those rules, even if you understand that logic, it's indeterminate and changing, um, has, uh, uh, has an advantage because it allows one to think about, because we don't, um, because how we conceptualize ourselves is in, in some, is partially structured by how we understand, by, by these contracts. Um, by um, by the forms of relationships in which we enter. So it's not to say that um, uh, you know that the current structure of landlord tenant agreements are good, but um, you know to think about what a judge is doing and enforcing a landlord tenant agreement as um, as just uh, you know being. Um, captured by ideology and failing to sort of like deeply empathize with the, uh, with the tenant, um, I think misses the, the fact of, um, the, the, the sort of the sets of settlements that make a landlord tenant agreement happen and the sort of political responsibility that one would have to engage in to think about, 
um, different ways to disrupt a landlord, you know, the, the system that makes landlord tenant agreements possible, if you think they're unequal, um, uh, which requires thinking about how landlord tenant agreements are situated within other social agreements, rather than just thinking about it as some sort of like veil of ideology that we can just get past, um, if that uh, is, is coherent enough. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. So, so, I mean, Luke, I think in closing, although I, I may have a follow-up as well, I mean, it, it, it strikes me that you offer a really kind of compelling critique of how neoclassical economics through the lens of sort of the law and economics vision of contract theory has kind of desocialized and offered both a kind of descriptive, descriptively and normatively unsatisfying account of how contract law works in practice, in theory and 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 in practice, at least in part because of its sort of unacknowledged ideological priors that kind of it comes to the table with that prevent it from seeing the kind of broader social context in which contract theory works. So I guess my question is when it comes to this project of socializing or re-socializing context, instead of looking beyond economics to other fields of social science, to the kind of social context in which people engage in these kind of inherently political and, um, and you know and social relationships power based relationships is is the project one of sort of removing or kind of adopting and getting rid of that kind of ideological lens or simply being cognizant of the ideological lens because it's i guess i struggle to see how we get away from ideology in this context Right. Yeah. I mean, so I guess it depends on what one means by ideology. It's used in sort of very different ways in different literatures. But, um, you know, my inclination is to say, with respect to neoclassical economics, that um, there are sort of better and worse ways of of doing it. And I think I sort of talk about some of these varieties in the article. And, you know, it's it's one thing to just sort of and, and very few people do this anymore. To, to do what Posner did early on and what, you know, people like Milton Friedman did for a long time, which is just um, to just treat the world as if it is this, this, to, to say that, to, that the only rigorous economic analysis is to analyze this utopic world where um, everybody is fully rational, where, where markets are quote unquote perfectly competitive because all firms are quote unquote price takers um, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that are on the, on the knife's edge of failing if they don't fully maximize the preferences of every consumer um, where money uh, is a, is sort of just like a, is a, there's no, it's not, there's no monetary policy. Money just sort of like is the, the sort of way we communicate our preferences in some like diaphanous way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we just say, well, like we just assume the world is that way. And that's what, that's what it means to think rigorously. That's what it means to think economically. Um, right. That, that's, that's, I think, you know, what, what Slavo, Slavo Žižek would call pure ideology. Um, but, um, but it's another sort of thing to say, um, you know, for some sorts of questions, um, if we want to understand, um, um, for instance, you know, uh, what the, um, what the effect of, uh, you know, of, um, 
of on on the price of uh oil is going to be of um this uh you know closing down this these gas stations on the west coast right and we have to estimate what that is and for and given you know for those that sort of narrow question predictive question we can make a whole number of simplifying assumptions um you know, that's, that's a sort of much more practical use of potential, you know, even potentially even neoclassical economic models to you know estimate some sort of price elasticity or something, um, which don't necessarily have normative implications. And, and there's a whole bunch of things in between. And to me, the much more, you know, the much more interesting set of things to understand is, is that if one's going to take a more humble version of neoclassical economic analysis, one needs to situate it within a broader understanding of what, you know, what we're doing when we enforce contracts, because it can't just be, you know, we're allowing people to engage in welfare maximizing behavior because that's not how the world works. So um, we can analyze the world, you know, we can analyze people as if that's what they're doing for certain purposes, but we can't just assume that's how the whole thing works and that everything works out. Um, so, so that requires taking, um, you know, we might say ideology seriously, but but here the sort of ideology that we're talking about is, you know, what is, you know, asking a question about what the purpose of organizing something through contract is about um, about um, what, you know, given that broader frame um, and whether or not we accept a broader frame, what the purpose of um um, you know what the value of enforcing a given contract is, um, what the value of giving parties the ability to structure their own agreements, um, and within which bounds, um, and um, you know, subject to which sorts of remedies. You know, those are the sorts of core questions of contract theory. But being able to answer them as political questions, I guess, which which is to say, you know, ideological or not, you know, that the, the 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 way we answer those questions in some sense depends on why we think contracts are good. And I think it's just a much more complicated question because why contracts are good is different in different contexts. You know, um, you know, both freedom and welfare enhancing properties are matter. And also there might be other sorts of purposes that we might care about. And to be able to take that sort of thing into account, you actually have to have a broader um, theory about, you know, you know, why do we have healthcare? Why do we have, um, you know, why do we have cons uh, consumer markets for um, books? You know, why do we have um, commodities markets, um, et cetera? <laughs> and how do those fit in with other markets? And to be able to, to be able to answer those sorts of questions, one has to be able to draw from a whole, a whole bunch of different um, social forms of social research, not just neoclassical economics and not even primarily, and also to have a, a broader sort of political, I don't want to say a sort of overarching political theory, but a political sensitivity to um, what matters and why. Well, uh, Luke, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading the paper. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will check out the entire piece because, you know, even though it's a long conversation, there was a lot more in the paper that we didn't have a chance to get to. Um, thanks so much, Brian. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time and sorry for joining us. Whereas the aforementioned party of the first part hereby contracts with the party of the second part who shall be known... Hello, this is Burr Reynolds. 
You know, contracts can be very confusing. The Federal Trade Commission has a few words of advice for you. First, do not sign a contract until you've read and understood it. Sometimes the small print takes away what the big print gives. Second, if you have any questions, consult your lawyer or the neighborhood legal service office. It could save you a lot of money in the long run. For more advice on evaluating a contract, write Truth in Lending, Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C. That's Truth in Lending, Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.